October 12th, 2021 marks two years since someone killed Sean Callier with an SUV while he was leaving a Portland bar. Because this series centers around Sean's death and why his case remains unsolved two years later, we wanted to talk about his life. So in this special episode, we're gonna hear from someone who spent a lot of time with Sean when he was 15 years old at the Occupy Portland protests in 2011. The time when he was first learning about direct action and protests. It was around this time that Laura and Sean had to move to a more working class neighborhood in Portland and he started to see more disparities up close. His family and friends say that the desire to do something about fundamental problems in American society led Sean to the Occupy Portland protests. Thousands of people were turning out for these demonstrations, and many would camp at parks in downtown Portland near the federal courthouse. It was a turning point in Sean's life. It would define who he was. Ani Raven was one of the activists at the camps, where people slept in tents, and tarps for around a month under rainy Pacific Northwest skies. Autonomous groups formed everywhere to plan protests against the city government and to provide meals for the occupiers. Raven served as a kind of mentor for Sean at this time. Our producer Ryan Haas interviewed her. First, a quick note. You'll hear Raven talk about Sean taking on his first street name, Yaka, and the hard time Sean had after that May Day protests he led where police tackled him. Raven was also the person hosting the community radio show the day Sean took to the airwaves to talk about his anarchism. It was an unexpected reunion for these two friends. Okay, let's get to the show. How did you meet him? So when Occupy was happening, I knew that it was going to be big and I kind of had an idea of the shape of it. And so... I threw myself into it pretty wholeheartedly and became one of the facilitators very early on. And in that way, Sean was one of the, the very first people that I got to know. Was he staying there? Was he just visiting? I think he was, I think he was camped there most of the time. You know, I knew he had a mom and a little sister. And, you know, Sean was so complex, beautifully complex between the anger of the injustice and the let's do this thing, balls to the wall attitude of a 15-year-old gonzo activist. Those two things were just like melded in Sean in a way that I just don't see and I haven't seen in anyone else. After the camp broke up, we kept meeting, right? We kept general assemblies going and Sean kept going to those really faithfully. He was really zany, you know, he, he was goofy. And he was super, super earnest and super serious about making the world better and about sort of checking himself, turning into like whatever toxic masculinity was and really questioning gender, I think, was a huge part of that. And there was a time where where Sean uh, took on a different name, uh, Yaka, and, yeah. we're, you know, questioning uh, binary gender structure. And well, can you talk about that a little bit? Like not a lot of people knew him as Yaka. It was a lot of... In learning queer history, it was a lot of asking about what is gender and really starting to explore a non-binary space. Um, I identify as gender queer. I'm a cis woman, but I've always messed with the boundaries. And I think that was the thing that Sean kind of latched on to. There was something that around maleness that he rejected. 
but wasn't sure where he fit in the gender spectrum at that point. It was an interesting time, it seems like, in his life where he was kind of figuring himself out and how he felt about himself. And Yeah, and that's actually probably when we hung out the most. He considered me an elder in the queer community. And I remember laughing a lot about that because I was like 46, 47. And I hadn't yet started thinking of myself as an elder. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, what's that about? <laughs> and I realized, okay, you know, here's this teenager who doesn't know a lot of this history. And, and I remember at some point he was upset when somebody was reclaiming some word. I can't remember what it is. And we started talking about the dynamics of reclaiming language as marginalized people and taking words that have been hurtful and using them as our own. And I said, but, you know, Sean, you identify with queer. You don't think queer is a bad thing. And he's like, no, no, queer is an empowering word. And I'm like, right, I'm of the age group that actually reclaimed that. I was threatened, you know, with uh, some major punishments with with being stripped of some credits at PSU when I uh, insisted on, you know, queer as a valid identification you know back in the mid 80s and this kind of you know blew him away that there you know these steps that had gone before that that weren't that long before that he had been unaware of and that just added to my my view of Sean as somebody who is always seeking to know more always seeking to learn more history and as soon as he was presented with something you know that was new he would start seeking to to integrate that Laura talked about like this time, he sort of went to a new school and started to realize not everybody kind of had a charmed life. There was that class issue and in the way that he saw the world, you know, treating people that were neurally divergent. I think that really was formative for him, for sure. There was a, a march shortly after Occupy was shut down, but it ended up going very, very badly. Maybe. Yes, I think it was the May Day March, wasn't it? It was the May Day March. And people got hurt. Cops were cops. And I think that they did a kettling maneuver. I wasn't there, but I remember talking to his mom uh, shortly thereafter. And she was just beside herself about the anger that was being directed, you know, at Sean. People in the group were berating him or what, what yeah. happened? Yeah, it was, you know, it was like, how could he be so you know, inexperienced, basically. And it was just a lot of blaming. He uh, did things that were really not, you know, if you, if you just knew, you, you wouldn't have done that. And I had to step forward and, you know, say, everyone is free to follow, right? No one had to do what was laid out by, by Sean at that time. You know, that's the whole point of decentralized action. This person had an idea. Y'all empowered this person. Y'all did the thing. Y'all are perfectly responsible for your own actions. You know, and the idea of blaming somebody who's 15 and learning activism for getting kettled by the police, which is what they have been known to do for as long as I've been alive, you know, is, is ridiculous, right? And so... There were several of us that had that idea, but I remember that being a real uh, pivotal point in, uh, I think, in also Sean's development. I think they ended up taking themselves more seriously after that point. I, they took themselves plenty seriously before. Like I said, they were always seeking more wisdom. They were always seeking. They're just so earnest about wanting to do the right thing and make the world better. They were so very angry by injustice. 
you know, if somebody said something that was that was messed up, they hadn't checked their own racism or sexism, chances are good Sean was going to call that out and yell from across the room before I, as a facilitator, could say, okay, let's step back a moment and look at what we've said, <laughs> you know? Um, it was just like, what'd you say, you know? And, and I loved that. <laughs> More after this break. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. We're returning now to our conversation with Ani Raven, a Portland area activist who helped mentor Sean in direct action and radical politics at Occupy Portland. It had been a few years since I'd seen him. The last time he was actually on a talk radio show at KBU and was using the name Armenia. Do you recognize him immediately or? Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, aside from him being taller. Yeah, totally. And it was so good to see that he was still exactly who he had been, you know, that that he hadn't mellowed <laughs> with time. Uh, he had kept that ideal of what was worth striving for. And we hugged. It was just this wonderful reunion. I enjoyed the show. I loved the fact that he was being, you know, provocative. And I remember taking calls for the rest of the day from people that were mightily upset by, <laughs> by what he'd said. I've heard yeah. that he got in trouble with people because he would say things that folks didn't like. Yeah, and I think part of that, you know, I think he liked to rock the boat, um, in part probably to get people to think, um, and in part probably, you know, because he's sometimes mischievous, you know, and uh, there's some power in rocking the boat. The idea that somebody could ever use Kabu's airwaves to say that they had a gun or that gun ownership might be important to people on the left. Yaka, Armenio, would not be a part of an echo chamber, right? They always spoke their own truth. They didn't care how it was going to hit. They probably examined it and have it grounded in a lot of history. I didn't know them to really go off half-cocked, ever. They really wanted to make sure that they were grounding what they said. 
do you remember hearing about when he, he passed? I was coming back from a grassroots radio conference. My partner was looking at social media and uh, she said, you know, Sean Keeler? And I was like, yeah, I know Sean. Like, that's Yaka. What's up? And then, you know, she was like, oh, um, he got killed yesterday. Yeah, I was just blown away. I was so, it was like a gut punch, even though I didn't see them very often. I knew that they were active and knew that they were doing great things. Yeah, it's just always left me sad and it just doesn't make sense. When you say it doesn't make sense, what do you mean? Well, just in the grander scheme of things, you know, here's this brilliant person who just had so much passion for the world, so much passion for justice, so much, so much to offer and to have their life taken so young in such a way that just seems meaningless. It seems so, it just seems so insane. Having no answers, having, having all these questions, knowing that the authorities don't care when it's somebody that, um, that has been so critical. And so where do you get justice? And how do you find closure? In your eyes, what, what would be justice in this case? It would be something in a restorative model where the person that killed Sean could take accountability for their actions, could be in service to the community, specifically to Sean's family, if that's possible in any way, to come to an understanding of the harm they've done. Justice doesn't look like somebody riding in jail, still angry at the world, still not actually caring or taking accountability or helping to heal the harm that they've done. And I know that, you know, that would be anathema for Sean too, right? What do you think people should know? Like if you live in middle America and, you know, you're not used to radical politics, what do you think people should know about Sean? Sean was somebody who wanted the world to work for everyone. He didn't want people to be left out because they couldn't afford basics. He didn't want people to be left out because they thought differently or, you know, had autism or developmental disabilities. He didn't want people to be left out because of their race or their gender or their gender expression. He wanted a world that was truly uh, fair. Uh, with egalitarianism. And he was willing to work for that world and to do just about anything to bring that into being. Sean was a radical person. You know, he had radical ideas. And like, I don't know, he kind of broke the mold a little bit. Way. Uh, he totally broke the mold. And, and I think that is because he really stayed true to his own lights. He did his history, he did his own analysis, and that was that was sort of where it sat for him. He wasn't going to be a follower. He wasn't going to be like, if I identify as an anarcho-syndicalist and I read this body of work, then this is my philosophy and I will stay inside its bounds, you know, which I think many people, you know, do that. Whereas Sean was like, you know, here's my analysis of the world and various social justice movements. I will act within, you know, this context and not within uh, the confines of a label. And so in that way, I think he was pretty iconoclastic. 
you know, didn't constrain himself to uh, say things that would make his colleagues particularly comfortable at times. I talked to Mike Crenshaw yesterday and I talked to him about this, you know, how dangerous his life was to do this and what that's like on a person to sort of put yourself there. Well, I mean, you know, there's that phrase, is this the hill you want to die on? For some of us, there are those hills. You know, I worked at a feminist women's health center for a number of years. And there were a couple of times I was chased in traffic. You know, I could recognize the driver as being one of the anti-choice folks from the clinic. And, you know, this was around the time that, you know, doctors were being killed in other parts of the country. And you actually think, yeah, this is this is the hill I'm going to, you know, I am willing to die on this hill. What does that mean? And it, there's a way that it kind of shapes you, you know, to realize that there are issues that are big enough for, for you to lay down your life. And I think that there are some activists who look at that and actively face it. And I think Sean's one of them. A lot of activists don't. They have their lives and then there's activism, which is something they do. And then there are those of us who are more like activism is a part of who we are. And making uh, those changes are absolutely worth whatever it takes. And sometimes it takes you know, the sacrifice of, of a life. That was Ani Raven talking to producer Ryan Haas about Sean's early life in activism and what Sean meant to her. I'm Sergio Olmos, and we'll be back in your feed soon with the next episode in our series. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. This show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Haas, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. This episode was produced by Mia Warren. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete G.K. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Ekpatola. Member support makes all the podcasts and journalism you rely on from Oregon Public Broadcasting possible. Help ensure the next important story is covered, invest in stories that begin in the Pacific Northwest, and reverberate throughout the country. Join in as a sustaining member now at opb.org pod. Thank you for your support.